What's up, everyone? Welcome to this edition of Hiring University. I am John Beck, your host today. We welcome Andrew Sillerin to the show. We And we are going to talk about all things fintech with Andrew. Andrew wears a lot of hats and has his hands in a lot of initiatives and has done a lot. Andrew is not only an experienced entrepreneur, he is also an investor, architect, and technical consultant with a number of successful startups. Currently, he is team lead and contributor at Symbian.io, as well as CTO at Gobi.io. Andrew started as a former, maybe recovering, full-stack engineer, first learning C in 1999 at the university level at Stanford, continued his technical growth from student assistant to startup founder, and his current interests include blockchain, augmented and virtual reality, and financial services. Andrew, welcome to Hiring University. Hey, good to be with you. We're going to talk a lot about fintech, and for our listeners Let's start by coming up with the definition, because fintech is a term that, frankly, is thrown around a lot these days. In your mind as a technologist, how do you define, if you can, fintech? Yeah, fintech has evolved uh, a ton over the last decade. Just in my own career, going back to where we started, where I started with fintech at Equator, which is now owned by Altasource, we were handling billions of dollars in foreclosures after the crisis. And back then that was fintech, just the basic nuts and bolts of the finance industry and trying to unwind these foreclosures. You can imagine how tough that is to unwind foreclosures from 10 different banks and trying to get them offloaded correctly. And and, and you're talking 08, 09, correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. At the very peak. And so we're at the very heart of it. In fact, we handled uh, 90% plus of the foreclosures at the time. Yeah, it, it's evolved since then to these nuts and bolts and old style monolithic solutions to where we're at now with blockchain, where not only is it not monolithic, it's distributed. And not only is it distributed, but it's also componentized for different types of consumers, right? So you have the banks in there, but you can also have traders now that are directly in the same network instead of having the traditional middleman that would usually be like a pass or SaaS solution in between. Anyway, to answer your question, I think FinTech now not only includes blockchain, but anything that really takes any kind of technology that takes security into mind is basically wrapped into FinTech nowadays. And it's really, yeah. the, that's, I think that's the factor that brings regular technology into fintech is, is it secure enough to trust your money with? Yeah, and I think it's important to note that the fintech movement and innovation movement is happening in different pockets of the marketplace. This isn't just about startup disruptor technologies. The big banks, household names like JP Morgan has 50,000 software developers and product managers, designers. Bank of America apparently is the largest blockchain patent holder, which was news to me. Regional banks are now starting to partner with startups to help stay relevant and accelerate customer acquisition, among other things. In the past few years, it's going back to 2015, there were 100,000 jobs that were defined as fintech, whereas today, over 750,000. And a large portion of those are in software engineering. What's the profile or the difference if any, between if I'm going to go try to find a job at, say, J.P. Morgan or Bank of America versus well-funded startup with top-tier VC pedigree, are there different considerations 
those big banks, it wasn't long ago that they were still looking at green screens and the world is caught up. Any thoughts around that? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things I've noticed firsthand, and this comes from hiring directly into bank projects. So as a consultant with Corellin, I work with Triana Next, CME. And from there, uh, of course, their clients, B2B clients, include almost every bank out there. And so we're constantly onboarding people in those projects through the bank pipeline. And for those candidates, the banks still look at a depth of knowledge that a startup doesn't care about. So JPMC, for instance, or HSBC, they're looking at, do you understand maybe for a project like FX trading? Can you describe FX trading? Do you know how to clear trades? And there's a bunch of terminology that if you're a great engineer coming out of college, you're not going to necessarily know this deep financial background. And that is something that, that's going away. I've, I've seen it firsthand with uh, Citadel where um, talking to their team, they're looking for uh, all sorts of engineers despite their background. But yeah, the startups out there and the heavy hitting VC backed stuff, you know, they're taking the top talent and then figuring out the finance stuff later. We certainly are approaching hiring that way at Symbian. We, we've We've got a ton of PhDs that have great cryptographic experience and zero finance experience, and they're becoming amazing fintech engineers. Is there risk associated with that for startups? And and let me give you an example that we see, because we have a number of, we have a mix of established, and when I say established, decades old financial services companies, and then a lot of new startups, I can tell you some of the job descriptions that we see around engineering roles, we're surprised that we don't see mention or emphasis on experience around regulation and compliance, you know, which are encompassing security. There's been some headlines of late with some of the newer startups that are, you know, growing like crazy that have been targeted. Is there exposure there? Is there risk there? Absolutely. You know, I've seen it firsthand. I've been involved and obviously can't talk about it over a public channel, but giving you the high level details, these leaks happen all over the industry and the breaches are like a weekly occurrence in the industry. And there's definitely a lot of risk mitigation that it's a game of a balance. It's a balancing act really, to figure that out. Do you think that there are core foundational skill sets that an aspiring entry-level couple years in the industry software engineer need to establish or build to be successful in the space? And we we published a blog a couple of weeks ago, and the list that we had included microservices, cloud computing, which is broad, continuous integration development, security, are those some of the things? Are there other things? What guidance can you give? Because we get a lot of requests from candidates that say, boy, I really want to get in, but I don't know if I have X, Y, or Z. Are there things that you look for when you're building out teams? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Tossing aside all of the the keywords and, and uh, cool things yeah. that we talk about in security. Yeah. If you find a candidate and they're constantly thinking about where 
can a malicious actor breach my system, then they've already got a leg up. And once they move their mindset into understanding that they're deploying into an adversarial situation, which is anything that goes on the, uh, that's connected to the internet, then once you shift your thinking that way, you're just being proactive about it and knowing that you're designing to operate in an adversarial situation it helps a ton. So I def- I, yeah, I won't even consider someone who just blindly goes out and puts out software and, and doesn't think about that. A lot of us are working from home these days. It's opened up a lot of opportunities for developers in particular. Yeah. Again, with finance comes a different level of scrutinization and adherence. Yeah. That make it better or worse, possible, less possible. I know that there's some clients that still are saying there's lockdown in terms of systems and that they're rushing and, and waiting eagerly for their developers to come back to the office because there is security implications to work remote. Any thoughts or what you've seen for the better or for the worse in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. There are a ton of legacy companies who have these models where you've got managed devices, right? You've got networks where they're pulling down data into personal computers and developers are running models on those personal computers. And basically it's a security risk on a physical level. So it just makes it that much worse when you're in a distributed team. Now, looking at Symbian, looking at Gobi, looking at some of the security we have across the board, I won't go into extreme detail. Think about it this way. It's easy to secure your data if we never put the data on your machine to start with. And so most of the time when we're working on a sensitive project, our machines are nothing more than just cheap host terminals. And we're logging into a very fortified environment with uh, 2FA and, and sometimes 3FA. And once we're in that environment, we're still walled off from production environments. But then we can control at a central uh, level, the level of logging and who's actually developing on this stuff. And so once you have that paradigm shift that whether you're on site in the office or you're out on your laptop, that you're connecting as a host computer into the real machine, then you have so much more control. Yeah, we actually log into what will spawn a bunch of machines on AWS or GCP, log into the GCP machines, and then actually jump through gateways to start doing real work. And so if someone took my computer right now and didn't have my phone and my fingerprint, it would be completely useless. They, I'd lose nothing. And at the same time, the encrypted traffic, even if they were to grab that encrypted traffic, they'd see some key logging, but it wouldn't make sense because unless you're going to completely decrypt the TMUX stream, then you wouldn't understand what we're working on anyway. You mentioned Amazon and GCP. Azure is rounds out the big three. Do you have preference for certain workloads or tasks or data between the three? 
versus homegrown hosting in a data center? Does that matter to you? And I know a lot of people, most people, more people these days are deploying multi-cloud strategies for redundancy and failover and price negotiation. Do you have preference one way or the other between the big three or other? Okay. On machine learning, GCP to me is so much easier, even with SageMaker on AWS, just because of their Jupyter integration and being able to set up transforms quickly between uh, data flow. GCP is my go-to for ML. Mm-hmm. However, using Terraform and Terraform Cloud, so we've really adopt, we've gone full in on the Terraform Cloud. And you can control now at the true DevOps level access. Previously, we'd have DevOps engineers who are logging in and handing out identities and stuff like that. We don't care about that anymore. (laughs) When we have a new developer, we just give them GitHub credentials. Mm -hmm. They can push to Terraform or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And And then the Terraform cloud deployment figures out, okay, is this off the master branch? Is this off the develop branch? And then that pushes. Basically, every change comes from Terraform. And Terraform tracks the state of the deployment for us so we can see if something drifted and Anyway, we have a ton of advantage. We're using a lot of DevOps techniques like that and, and serverless. It's really, luckily, abstracted a bunch of things uh, for us. Let me ask you about DevOps, too, because that's another term that gets thrown around a lot. We get requests from clients looking for DevOps engineers, and the first way that we typically break down that request is, and I want to see if you agree with this and then expand on it, do you want somebody that's coming from an infrastructure background or do you want somebody that's coming from an application development background? Because they're very different and they're different jobs. And DevOps wasn't a term that even existed six, seven years ago. Right. Uh, can you expand on that based on the work that you do? And, and do you agree with that? My preference is always the app side. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you why. The, for the actual implementer of the DevOps strategy, I do want them to come from an infrastructure side. I want them to understand how the database works on a hardware level. I want them to be able to tune the database, deploy a database into the exact machine that we need. But I don't want engineers on my team to worry about that stuff. I don't want them staying up at night worrying about how we can tune Postgres to get sub-millisecond writes on whatever kind of data. I don't care. I want the DevOps company to do that for me. Yeah. It's almost table stakes, right? That's, yeah, it's the plumbing. Yep. Fair enough. I think that the the our industry is due for recalibration or fine-tuning that term. And it's it's not <laughs> the first time it's happened where we've gone crazy with the term, but it it drives me nuts because again, more often than not, people aren't even really thinking about what they're looking for. Andrew, you are arguably on the cutting, if not bleeding edge, of what's happening in your space. What is around the corner that most of us can't see that you can see or anticipate that excites you? <laughs> with what yeah. you can disclose. <laughs> with what I can disclose, yes. okay, publicly, and you can draw your own conclusions. We're already doing transfers for certain governments on large amounts of cash between commercial banks. So if you look at Singapore, for instance, we've already cut out all of the glue in between these transfers that would normally slow them down. And as we look at other things happening in our own country, in California, they're opening up the ability to do more stuff on 
the mortgage side of things, right? To mm-hmm. recently uh, moved here in Wilsonville and, you know, closing and all that stuff, it takes weeks. And really uh, with a smart contract, there's no reason why that shouldn't take a day. Yeah. And so looking at the regulation landscape, that's the only thing that's holding us back right now. So as we progress with that, I think you're going to start seeing things that we traditionally thought would take months or weeks, take hours, minutes, and then eventually seconds. Probably saving a whole lot of trees along the way too. I, I had uh, a, a guest on uh, the last episode from Ping Identity and, and he brought up some good points about identity management at the consumer level and a very simple uh, example of in order to buy alcohol, most people don't really know to know the color of your eyes or the color of your hair. Why do we still carry a physical uh, identification card, let alone a wallet? And so I, it's interesting that your two, your two examples came both from the large scale enterprise transferring data across international lines. And then as, it, as much as it relates to the consumer as well, too. So it sounds like a lot of the innovation parallels, it typically hits the consumer later, but interesting response. I remember 2006, maybe 2005, when I first saw Mint, which Intuit acquired, and the fact that they could scrape data from four different accounts was mind-blowing. I still think there are people that are just entering into that digital journey themselves where that is as mind-blowing today as it was 15 years ago, but I think it's only accelerating. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues. And I think COVID has been an accelerant to that because of, of all the things that we're facing today. Andrew, I, I, we always take a little time with our guests to talk about your own personal career and development. And my favorite question, uh, if you listen to other episodes, you'll know it's coming. I just uh, created the Wayback Machine and I can put you in there and take you to when you first started your career coming out of Stanford. What do you tell yourself at that point in time with the information that you know and the experience that you have today? Yeah, if I could communicate with myself back through that way back machine, I'd say, please um, don't stay up till 4 a.m. every night. <laughs> for, for yeah, there's just absolutely no reason for, for doing that type of grunt work. And I, I didn't understand working smart until much later in my career. It took almost a whole de- yeah, a whole decade to, to get to that point. So you're talking work-life balance. Work-life balance, but also working smarter. It's even if sometimes I still work till 4 a.m., but when I work until 4 a.m., it's, it pays dividends, not work until 4 a.m. because I'm manually moving over tables in MySQL or something. Now you give it to the DevOps guy, right? <laughs> DevOps guy or call somebody and, and ask and figure it out. And yeah. If, yeah. If, if it's taking that long, something's wrong, so. I think it gets a lot easier too when you're the CTO versus the entry level guy, but (laughs) that's part of it. You've been, your resume is fantastic. You've been a lot of interesting places, Uh, Stanford education. I'm assuming you've had some really good mentors along the way. Can you pick one or two that really had an impact on you and feel free to name names or not, but any specific mentors that gave you pieces of advice that have stuck with you and that have carried you forward and maybe that you've imparted on other folks that are now working for you? Yeah. First commercial position, because I had been a research assistant and, and teaching assistant. And, and then I was an intern at Staten Street, where 
Beto O'Rourke founded that. Mm. So I've known Beto since uh, 98. Interesting. Yeah. Coming, actually, he prepared me for this. After that internship, I went to a company that produces latex gloves and went to go work in like the the basement of the factory. And (laughs) they're um, operating the general manager for uh, the online division, Will Sasser. He started bringing me up to meetings and he brought me up to my first board meeting. And in the first board meeting, they asked, okay, can we get this done in time? And I said, yeah, of course we can do that. I'm just a young engineer and I think I can do anything. Coming from the basement to the board meeting. (laughs) Yeah. And so Will brought me into his office afterwards and he said, if I ever do that again, he'll kill me. (laughs) And I don't think he was, there wasn't a, a laugh afterwards. And I didn't know that Will was a Vietnam veteran and he meant it. He wasn't bluffing. I learned my lesson early on that that expectation management is key in software engineering. And knowing your own limitations takes years. And so if you're starting off, it's better just to look at the data and err on the, the, the side of caution than, than trying to promise the world. And it just causes a ton of headaches for young engineers. Some would say, and by the way, this applies not only to software development, but in most aspects of business, maybe in life, although not all, I'll have to think about that, but to under-promise and over-deliver. And the enthusiasm and invincibility of youth gets in the way of that sometimes. So I I appreciate that comment. Andrew, um, we've been chatting for about 30 minutes. What question should I have asked you today or did you want me to ask you today that I did not? Yeah. What is blockchain? I guess people are so tired of that. Let's do it. Uh, tell me what, because this will, I, I want to know, because <laughs> I've read at least, I read a lot about blockchain and I don't know if I've still gotten my head around it. Distill it down for us. Yeah. Okay. This comes out of uh, the uh, daily enjoyment I get of telling people that I'm involved in fintech and yeah. you know blockchain, all this other stuff, and then them bringing up Bitcoin or Ethereum. Yes. Break it and, down. Uh, <laughs> And first off, blockchain is part of the technology for Bitcoin, Ethereum, obviously, and it's just part of it. So when you hear blockchain and fintech, we're simply talking about a cryptographic technique for a immutable ledger, or it's not even a ledger sometimes, but just an immutable tree of data. And that's it. And I think it gets blown out of proportion of what it is and how gets applied. We're using smart contracts. And that I think that's the key uh, difference for how we're able to make blockchain useful. But at the very core, we're just ap- applying advanced cryptography to really advanced data structures. And it's not cryptocurrency. We're, we're not using the, like the ECR 20 contracts or, or from Ethereum. There's no compatibility with that stuff. And so uh, blockchain is very useful for banks. It's very useful for commercial customers. It's not something that kids are going to be using in their basement to trade Bitcoin, stuff like that, even though it's part of that technology, yes, but it's, it's so much more. And so hopefully we can dis- dispel that myth and, and start 
seeing blockchain for what it is. Do you foresee a day when Bitcoin really becomes a mainstream currency? And some would argue that it already is. But do you foresee that day coming? And if so, how long from now? I, I think something that will take the place of Bitcoin look like it will will be mainstream. Mm-hmm. I personally don't see how you will be able to make Bitcoin mainstream ever. Looking at the, we, we look at, at commercial traffic and, and it's not clear to someone who's using Bitcoin how much traffic Visa or MasterCard does per day, per hour, per second. And the amount of traffic they do per second is equal to how much Bitcoin traffic there is for a few hours. Yeah. So in order to go from doing that it's exponential growth. It's not possible to do that. And just cost-wise and, and machinery and everything, it's not ever going to be feasible. But you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to discard Bitcoin or it's not going to be able to transfer to something else. The, the concept is, is strong. It's just the implementation, I hope, will, it will become mainstream at some point. Interesting. And gaining momentum, clearly. It's becoming part of the mainstream discussion, although I still would argue that very few totally understand and plenty have been burned um, <laughs> trying to attempt to invest in as it's highly speculative at this point. Yeah. Terrific. I appreciate you taking the time and I'm glad you you brought that up. Andrew, before we go, tell our listeners where what's the best way to connect with you online if they're looking to contact you about potential job opportunities, investment, advisement. Again, you wear a lot of different hats. What's the best way to, to contact you? Yeah, through my personal uh, consulting firm, which is Silurin.com, S-I-L-U-R-O-N.com. And I try to keep a schedule open of a few hours a week, and I'm happy to take up those slots or listen to whatever pitches are out there. And uh, again, I'm still an angel VC in the Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana area. Happy to always look at that stuff and anything that's cutting edge fintech, I'm all in. Awesome. Thank you for uh, bearing with the simpleton questions, diving beneath the surface a little bit to educate uh, our audience. Uh, Really appreciate you being here. Uh, Promise me you'll come back in a few quarters so we can compare notes and see how far along we are on some of the things that we talked about today. For our listeners, uh, as always, keep the faith, keep grinding, keep safe. We'll see you next time on Hiring You. Thank you again, Andrew. Thank you.